0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. So as Pastor Killingsworth said, this is Reformation Sunday, right? Uh, And um, it's not often that it actually falls on October 31st. That's the day. And here it is, October 31st, on a Sunday, which is great. I was thinking about how to, um, how do we, you know, how with holidays we greet one another. We say like Merry Christmas and Happy Birthday and things like that. What do we say with this? Do we say Merry Merry Reformation Day? Doesn't sound quite right, does it? Although it's true. I was thinking that. Uh, It's like Easter, you know, where we have this call and response thing where we say, he is risen. So I thought of this this morning that when when Pastor Killingsworth was talking about that motto from um, Geneva, after darkness, light. So how about this? After darkness. Nice. Maybe we can start a new thing. I want to read to you um, from a part of a, just real briefly here, a paragraph from a sermon from Martin Luther. We know that October 31st, 157, 1517, so 504 years ago now, um, Luther was wanting to argue. He was, a, he was a college professor, essentially, and they would put up like... Um, lists of things they were gonna have a public argument about. That's how, they, that's how they did a lot of their education with public argument, right? And he did this. He put this up on the, on the church door, which is what everybody did. Nothing vandalous or anything like that about that. And the big part was about indulgences, right? Indulgences are where in the whole Roman Catholic system, the church has grace that comes a lot of it from extra stuff that really good people have done, and they're able to take that grace and give it to you to cover you know your lacking righteousness if you do certain things, and sometimes if you pay certain amounts of money. So if you pay the money, you get an indulgence is what it was called, right? Or you can buy one for your relatives or your friends. And that's really, uh, really got into Martin Luther and it bothered him deeply as a pastor. And so he's going to mention indulgences as I read this. Listen to what he says about how the Reformation happened. This is a sermon on March 10th, 1522, five years, only five short years after 1517 when this whole thing started. Five years. Listen to what he says. For the word created heaven and earth and all things. The word must do this thing and not we poor sinners. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it do it alone, do the work that distresses him for it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall of itself The word of God is living and active and powerful and sharp. And that's what made the Reformation happen. And God's not done working. He didn't finish working in uh, 2017, 1517. He's still working. And it's it's the same thing. He will only work through his word, not through our belligerating. It's a great lesson for us. Well, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I know it feels like we're going backwards, right? We're trying to get done with Romans, but we're going to go back to Romans 5, because it is exactly what we need to hear today. It is exactly what fired, fueled the Reformation. It's what he's going to talk about here. In Romans chapter 5. So listen as I read. As I read this, I want you to try to do something that's very hard to do. I want you to try to hear this, hear this passage, and hear everything that I say this morning, okay, as if you've never heard it before. I want you to hear it as if you've never heard this before. These things can become so common to us that it's like, uh, you know, your Charlie Brown going to the principal's office you know you don't hear a thing you we have to hear this and hear it like you've never heard it ever before like you're hearing it for the first time let it sink into you let the connection be made with this reality all right so romans chapter 5 verse 1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life and not only this but we also exult in god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation this is the word of the lord and so he begins you know chapter 5 verse 1 we are we are jumping in to a flow of thought we're jumping into like the end of an argument right We're jumping into the conclusion of the argument because it's therefore. So he's made an argument and now he's telling us the implications of the argument, but we've jumped into the end and so we've got to get our bearings. So what does he mean when he says, having been justified by faith? Understanding that drives everything in this passage. Therefore, having been justified by faith. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be justified by faith? One of our, we have two problems. Either we don't really understand what it means, or if we understand what it means in theory, it never connects with us in reality, okay? So we have to know what it means, And then we have to let it have traction with us. Have it connect with us, right? So what does he mean, having been justified by faith? Well, if you have your Bible, you can look up. I'm not gonna put it on the screen, but chapter four comes right before chapter five. He's been arguing about what justification is. And he tells us, chapter four, verse one, listen to this. What then shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Did you actually hear that? Or was this blah, 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 blah? This is what it it means to be justified by faith. And if you see this, you hear these words, it means two things, right? The thing he quotes from David, that's Psalm 32. He says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. So what is that? What's the word for that? Forgiveness, right? Forgiveness of your sins. Is that good news to you? That your sins have been, your lawless deeds have been forgiven. Do you know you have lawless deeds, right? Do you know that you have lawless deeds? Lawless deeds, lawless thoughts. Lawless motives, lawless words. You have lawless deeds, right? Because if you don't, then of course this is going to be nothing to you. You have lawless deeds. That deserve what? Death, wrath, judgment. Punishment because God is holy and you've broken his law. If that doesn't mean anything to you, then of course justification is something to to yawn at. But if you know you have lawless deeds, and it says here, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, you're standing before the judge, and he says, "Eh, dismissed." You thought you had the death. But you, you you knew that you deserved the death penalty, and he says, uh, "Don't worry about it. You know, we'll let this one go." To have your lawless deeds forgiven is incredible. Do you taste how wonderful that is? Do you believe it? I'm serious. Do you believe this? That your lawless deeds have been forgiven? As wonderful as that is, that's only half of the the equation when it comes to being justified. Okay? It's not, it is having your sins forgiven, but it's not just having your sins forgiven. That would be wonderful. If that's all that it was, that would still be wonderful. But we need more than that. So think about it like this. Think about your life. The record of your lawless deeds. Okay? And thoughts, and words, and motives, and loves, and hates, and everything that goes way down deep, right? The record of your lawlessness your disobedience to God, written out. But God says, okay, I'm gonna erase that. I'm gonna wipe it out. I'm gonna gonna cover that up. I'm gonna erase it. I'm gonna forgive all of that. I'm gonna wipe the slate clean. That would be wonderful, right? But then what if he does this? He wipes the slate clean. You get, you get a new start, you know, I'm gonna give you a second chance. Now, here's the slate. Now go for it. Fill it up. Fill it up with your righteous deeds. We're gonna start over, okay, we're gonna wipe away everything in the past, but now it's up to you. Fill it up with your righteous deeds. And so, you know, when you get to heaven, or when you die, I should say, when you die, we'll see where we stand. We'll see where you stand. Now, is that good news to anybody? That's what, that's kind of what the whole Reformation's about, really. The Roman Catholic Church teaches and taught, right, that there's this, that we're only as justified as we are sanctified. Now, does that make sense? that sanctification and justification are basically the same thing. And so you're, you know, the more holy you become, the more justified you become. But that work is never done and there's no real safe place to stand. And in fact, they tell you, the Roman Catholic Church to this day will tell you, the one thing you don't want to do is have any kind of certain assurance that you will in fact stand before God blameless. You can't have that. That makes people lazy and, and godless. That's what they say. It's not what God says. So look, you're standing before God. He wipes the slate clean. Does he give it back to you and say, now do your best and uh, we'll, have a, we'll, we'll grade this you know, when you die and we'll see where you stand? Is that what you want? No. What is the truth? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Whose righteousness? His own? Is it his own righteousness? No. No. It's Christ's righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness, it is Christ's work. It is Christ's work and not yours. And so he writes on that slate, but he writes on it every righteous thought, every righteous word, every righteous motive, every righteous deed that Jesus Christ has done. He writes that on your slate, you know, clear coats it, bakes it on, and can't be erased, and then he hands it back to you. So that on Judgment Day, let me see your slate. Oh, yeah, wow, perfect righteousness. Well done, perfect righteousness. You look like my son. That's what it means to be justified by faith. We have this natural aversion to this. We, we hear this and it just doesn't seem right. We have this question from the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism that we recited together today. And we, I think every time we, we do this, it's like, wait a minute, is that, is that really right? That sounds kind of extreme, doesn't it? Is it really that? Is it really? Pull this up. Look at it. Okay, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. You do have a conscience, right? And your conscience knows that this is true. That you do, in, in fact, continue to sin. That becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're done sinning. That would make most of the New Testament utter nonsense, all right? And you know it. We still sin. But God, yet God, without any merit of my own, but out of mere grace, imputes to me. That word imputes is this word credits. He credits it to your account. He, he takes that slate and writes Jesus' righteousness on it, right? He imputes to me the perfect satisfaction. That word satisfaction is talking about his death. He perfectly satisfied the wrath of God. He didn't deserve to die. You did. But he satisfied that wrath, that righteous judgment imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ. Art, is there a connection going on inside of you right now? Do you get this? What it means is when God looks at you he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when, at his baptism, when when Jesus is baptized, and the voice comes out of heaven? Remember this? What does the voice say? It's God the Father speaking, what does he say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. That's what it means to be justified. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You make me happy. Not because you're not a sinner. No, 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 no. But because God has credited to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Perfect satisfaction. Ah, go back. Righteousness and holiness of Christ. Now go on. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. That's what it means to be justified. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? Keep going. And, not just, not just as if I'd never sinned, right, but as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That's what it means to be justified by faith. To have all of your sins forgiven, to God to look, for God to look at you and not see any sin. And not just for Him not to see any sin, but for Him to see what? Perfect righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. Why do, why is, why are, why do we resist that so much? We do. No, no matter how often we hear this, it just kinda, you know, skips off. And we revert to this innate system that we bring into the world with us. Tell me what to do. Yeah, 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 just tell me what to do. The whole Reformation, right? The whole Middle Ages leading up to the Reformation, you could say was obsessed with this question. What must I do to be saved? It's a good question. It's a question of the Philippian jailer, right? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? It's a good question. It's the right question. The problem is with the answers. So what must I do to be saved? Well, you must um, make, a, make a vow of celibacy and poverty and go live in a monastery. That's what you must do to be saved. Okay, 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 I'll do it. What must I do to be saved? You must... Um, Receive communion every day. You must confess your sins to a priest. You must commit acts of penance. You know, well, like what? Tell me, tell me what to do. Well, uh, climb up the steps of the Vatican on your knees and whip yourself with a whip as you go. Okay, okay, I'll do it. we'll do anything, we'll do anything. If we have a conscience, we'll do anything (laughs) except the one thing. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved, what did the Apostle Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Uh, Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. I want to work, I want to work, I want to get my due, right, like he says up in Romans 4, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. I don't want your charity, I don't want you to give me something I didn't deserve, I don't want you to give me something I didn't earn, I want to earn it, I want to do my work and get paid, right? not about favor, I just wanna get paid what I deserve. Give me what I deserve. I'm gonna do it and you pay me. That's how we approach God. That's how every man-made religion on the face of the earth approaches God. And every one of us has a man-made religion living in our heart, (laughs) okay? That's why The kinds of religion that we make are that. It's what comes out. I'm gonna do my work, you pay me. But here's what it says. Here's what the gospel says. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Well, that's not fair. Precisely. Precisely. the one who does not work but justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as perfect righteousness, holiness, and obedience of Christ. And so he says in chapter five, verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, you know what I'm talking about now, right? Having been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God. Not we will have peace with God. Not if you obey enough, you can earn peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is the most important thing you can ever have is peace with God because you come into this world as an enemy of God and then you made yourself an enemy of God all the more by your lawless deeds, right? You're an enemy of God and yet, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is God's Um, disposition towards everyone who's been justified by faith no longer an enemy peace no longer an enemy friend we have peace with God God is at peace with us we have been reconciled to God. That's what he goes on to say in chapter five. We've been reconciled to God. The broken relationship, the animosity, the enmity, right, is gone. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not through my own filling up the slate with my goodness. No, we have right, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom says in verse two, through Christ also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The grace he's talking about is this grace, this gift, this free gift of justification. It comes by faith. It comes only through Christ. Christ takes us and puts us in this place of grace, grace of justification, and he makes us what? He makes us stand there. Not wobble there, you know. Not falter there, not crawl there. Stand. At the end of Jude, Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Who can do that? God can do that. Our Lord Jesus does that. If you're justified by faith, he has done that. It's as good as done. He will make you stand, not stumble, but stand in the presence of his glory. The burning, righteous glory of God, right? He will make you stand in the presence of his glory. How? Blameless. How can that be? Because it's not about you. Righteousness has been credited to your account. You've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Can you believe that? Your whole life depends on whether or not you believe that. He makes a stand. And then he says this at the end of verse two, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now that's a weird word, exult, right? It's, it's a, one of those weird words. We don't use that word. I'm pretty sure none of you have used that word this week. So we don't even really know what it means. It's, It's not exalt with an A, which means to, it sounds like it, so we kind of think it must be something like that. You know, that means to lift something up, right? To exalt something. Exalt with a U means to boastfully, loudly rejoice. It is not something you do in your heart. (laughs) Okay? It's it's, it's loud and it's out. We exalt. We boastfully rejoice, we can't stop talking about it. This is like the thing that is gushing out of us. We exalt in what? In hope of the glory of God. Well, What does that mean? Well, there are a couple of things it can mean. It could mean that we exalt in the hope, we rejoice, we boastfully rejoice in the hope of seeing the glory of God. And that's true, that's good. When we see the glory of God, we'll be satisfied forever. That's a great thing, right? It could mean that we exalt in the hope of sharing the glory of God, being glorified, right? When God, when we stand before him and he changes us completely and makes us exactly like his son, not just because he's credited, but because he's actually changed us, right? That's great to look forward to. But I think in this context, it means something different. That we exalt in hope of the approval of God it's what he's talking about. Having God say, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Look at, just um, listen, John 5, okay? Where Jesus Christ himself uses this word glory in exactly that way, that same way. This is John 5, 43 to 44. He says to the Pharisees, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe? How can you believe? It's not even possible for you to believe, he says. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Not the glory of God, but the glory that's from the one and only true God. So there's, there's two things, you can, there's two kinds of glory you can seek, right? Which means there's two kinds of approval you can seek. You can live for the glory of men, you can live for the approval of men. In which case you cannot even believe. Your heart is so bound up with receiving the praise of men that you will not believe. You can't. Or you can live for the glory that comes from God, the approval that comes from God. He uses this word in the same way in John 12. John twelve forty two. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval. It's the word glory, it's the same word. They loved the approval, the glory of men, rather than the approval, the glory of God. They loved the approval of men instead of the approval that comes from God. What is your hope? Do you hope someday to stand before God and have him say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, well done, good and faithful servant. If if you hope to stand there based on your righteousness, based on getting what you deserve, you are you will perish in your sins. But if you have this hope of being approved by God based on the righteousness of Christ, based on his righteousness being credited to your account by faith, not because you have done anything to earn it, but because you've trusted the one who justifies the ungodly, then guess what? That hope is not wishful thinking. That hope is certain and steadfast and solid and secure. And so you can actually boastfully rejoice in that now. You know, there's, we think of hope, and in our our way of talking, in our way of thinking about hope, it's almost always connected with what? With uncertainty, you know, wishful thinking kind of. I hope, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope we win the game, I hope I get this for Christmas, I hope, whatever, you know, we hope. We use that word in a tentative way. And scripture says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Well this is not that kind of hope. Because actually it has nothing to do with you. This is alien righteousness. This is what Luther said, alien righteousness, someone else's righteousness. Not um, innate righteousness in me, not natural, not me, but something totally outside of me, foreign to me, applied to me. Then you can have hope, and then you can rejoice. He goes on, verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. what where did that come from what does that have to do with anything he's talking about standing before God and and you know righteousness of Christ and being approved by God and we exalt in this and this is great and tribulations we exalt in our tribulations what's the logic of that We boastfully rejoice in our tribulations, not our inconveniences. Our tribulations, that's a massive, heavy word. The worst things you can experience in life, right? We boastfully rejoice in our tribulations. What does that have to do with being justified by faith and having peace with God? Think about this, you are outside of Christ, you don't know, you don't have peace with God, you have a conscience, everyone does. You know you deserve wrath, right? But you're outside of Christ, you don't have the hope of being approved by God, you don't have this peace with God, You don't know that your righteous deeds have been forgiven and your sins have been covered and you've been credited with the righteousness of Christ. You don't know any of that and bad things happen to you. What's the only way you can interpret that? God is against me. God is against me and I know I deserve it, but he's against me. So every bad thing that happens is read through that lens. I'm an enemy of God and I know I deserve it. uh, What happens if you've been justified by faith and you have peace with God and the tribulations come, right? What happens then? Does that change how you think about it? It changes everything. I'm, this is happening to me not because God is like vindictive and angry and punishing me. This isn't God's wrath being poured out on me. It can't be that because I've been justified by faith and I have peace with God. Okay? So then how do I think about my tribulations? Well. God must be doing something for my good. The the tribulations are coming to me because He loves me, because I'm at peace with Him, because He's working on me. This is exactly what Hebrews says, right? In Hebrews 12, don't think for a moment that if you're being disciplined by God, it's because God hates you. It's because He loves you. And if you have discipline, it's because He loves you, because you're a son. And he disciplines the son that he loves. And he disciplines the son that he accepts and embraces. That's the one who gets disciplined. If you don't get disciplined, that's, that's the sure sign that God doesn't love you. That's what Hebrews 12 says. And so, yes, we have tribulations. Yes, they're hard. Yes, it's not pleasant for the moment, right? But this is not some random, arbitrary, vindictive meaningless thing. This is God working in you. Look at what he says. Not only this, we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing the only way to exalt in your tribulations is to know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. God is at work. It's a sure sign that God loves me when he brings tribulation. This is not not how we think. We think it's a sure sign that God's angry at me when we have tribulation. It's exactly wrong. And it doesn't weaken our hope, it actually strengthens it. Why? Because hope does not disappoint. Verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is not our love for him. This is his love for us. This is our taste, our knowledge of the love of God for us that the Holy Spirit reminds us of this constantly. God loves you. He gives us that spirit of adoption that we call back to God. I love you too. Abba Father, right? And so we we take the tribulation and we don't enjoy it. There's no need for perseverance if you enjoy the tribulation. If it's not hard, there's no need for perseverance. We persevere because why? Because we know God is doing something. He, this comes to me from the love of God, not from the wrath of God. And then he, real quickly here, he starts arguing with us and he, he, he knows we're not going to believe this. He knows that what we really want to believe is tit for tat, right? Uh, Wage for work. And so there's something always in us, even as we hear these words, we're always thinking, yeah, but, yeah, but, tell me what to do. And he fights against that with this word from God. Look at verse 6. For a while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for you when you were strong and godly. You say, okay, that's a good one. Yep. While we were still helpless, morally, utterly helpless, ungodly, Christ died for us then. Then he says in verse seven, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, although perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. I mean, this is plausible. You can conceive of this, that someone would die for a righteous man. It doesn't happen very often, but you can, you can wrap your mind around that, right? right? But what? God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You wanna know what the love of God is? How do you know that God loves you? Because he sent his son to die for you. What seriously more do we need? John says in 1 John, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. You want to know what love is? Here it is. God demonstrates his love for you in this. While we were yet enemies, he died for us. And you want more proof. Do you want the proof that he loves? Is the proof that you demand from God that he loves you no tribulations? If God really loved me, he wouldn't give me this tribulation. That's what I want to see. When I see that, I'll know that he loves me. No, it's exactly the opposite of what he says. He's already shown you. He's demonstrated it by killing his son in your place. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, I mean, that was the hard thing. God sent his son and he killed him in your place so much more than, and he did that when you're his enemies. But now, verse 9, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's the easy thing. He killed his son for you, and he applied his righteousness to you and his blood to you. Don't you think he's going to save you? Verse 10 for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We always want to short-circuit all of this and insert our work. We want it to be, no, no, tell me what to do. I want to get it just right. Tell me what to do. And if that's what you want, if that's the bargain you want to strike with God, you will get exactly what you deserve. But it won't be mercy because we, none of us deserve mercy. And it won't be a good paycheck, right? It won't be eternal life. It'll be judgment. It'll be wrath. Nothing we do can cover our sins. Only Jesus can. Having been, just, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And then verse 11, and not only this, Not only do we exalt in hope of the glory of God, not only do we exalt in our tribulations, not only this, but we also exalt in what? Who? God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We exalt in the hope of being accepted by God. That's great. We exalt knowing that our tribulations are, even our tribulations are from the hand of a loving God for our good. But there's something even greater than that, right? We exalt in God. This is a personal, intimate, exalting, rejoicing, gloriously boasting in God for God's sake. We are right with God. We've been reconciled with God. We're at peace with God. Now, finally, guess what? I can actually love God. As long as you're trying to earn your way with him, you will not love him. You will not glory in him and rejoice in him because you're acting and thinking like a slave. And a slave is always wondering Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Is he going to kick me out? Am I going to get beaten? Am I going to get whipped? Is he going to sell me to someone else? Right? We can love God because that's gone. We've been reconciled. And what reconciled sons and daughters love to do, what do we love to do? we love to please him. Not to make him accept us, but because he already has. That is the engine that changed the world. That truth, right there. Now I can do my work. Now I can live my life. Now I can raise a family right now i can make things now i can live my life because i am right with god and he's put me here to work even dare i say to enjoy the things he's made and i receive even the good the good things from him as as a blessing and a joy Receive the bad things, the hard things, knowing He's working in me. It just changes everything. It frees us to live for Him. It frees us to love our neighbor. It frees us to forgive all the people who sinned against us because we know all the people who sinned against me combined is nothing compared to the way I've sinned against God, and he's forgiven me. Don't you see this changes everything? Changes everything. May God have mercy on us to believe this. It's true. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us believe this deeply from the heart. Make us make this connection, make it have traction with us, make us not walk out of fear and forget this in in 10 minutes, but to live on this as our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.